Support for Filmmaker Toolkit comes from HBO Documentary Films, presenting The Janes, the story of an underground network of women in Chicago in the late 60s and early 70s who provided safe, affordable, illegal abortions to women in need. This cautionary tale, directed by Tia Lesson and Emma Pildes, is a jarring reminder of what is at stake as abortion providers in the United States and the women they serve are forced back underground. The story of the Janes is our past and also now very much our present. For your Academy Award consideration, best documentary feature, and now streaming on HBO Max. Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, craft reporter for IndieWire, and I am very excited to talk with today's guest, Andi Timoner, about her terrific new film, Last Flight Home. The documentary follows the final days of Andi's father, Eli, as he prepares to die with dignity in response to debilitating illness. Obviously, this is an intensely personal work, but through her filmmaking expertise, Andi makes the experience of her family a larger story that raises profound philosophical questions about mortality, while also making a subtle but forceful case for compassionate choice laws. Mostly, though, this is a daughter's celebration of her father, and on that level, it is one of the most moving films I've ever seen. I'm delighted to have Andi here to talk with me about it. Well, I guess I want to start with the origins of this. I mean, when and how did you learn that your father was dying, and what was the kind of internal process that you went through deciding you were going to make a film about it? So Dad went into the hospital in late January 2021, and I... um, it was for breathing problems, but nothing to do with COVID. It was COPD, and he just sounded really like laborious breathing. And so they solved that, but in the few days, it was, I think, five days total that he was in there, having been paralyzed for, for 40 years from this accidental stroke that he had uh, when he was 53. At this point, by, by 92, it was very difficult for him to walk on his own, but because he was this entrepreneur, entrepreneurial spirit, and he was so intent on not being a burden to mom, uh, he would try to take himself to the bathroom and he would still walk and he was able to stay home for that. Well, because he'd been in the hospital for five days, they were saying he wasn't ever going to walk again and that he he wouldn't be able to and he'd have to go to a facility because like literally the doorways aren't big enough for a wheelchair and a lot of people's homes I think are like that, but their their sweet little ranch house in Pasadena wasn't going to cut it. And uh, for dad, I think, you know, his life was being with his beloved wife and to be with us three kids or to be able to root for us and to be in the center of our lives. Um, he was really uh, the most selfless and gracious person that I've ever known. And um, I don't know if you've ever read that book, Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl, but it, it reminds me his, the way he was, you know, Viktor Frankl's uh, – was in the Holocaust and was a psychologist. And he writes about how how a person suffers is one of the greatest opportunities we have um, at excellence, you know. And a dad dad suffered so, so without complaining for, for 40 years. Every flight that landed, the I would turn on my cell phone and ring. Dad would call. He'd been tracking the flight, you know. Um, he really just thought about everyone else. And that's how he got through. And to be shelved away, I think, was unthinkable to him. So he made this decision. And it was like once he made this decision, just like the entrepreneur he was, he was dead set on his decision. No pun intended. He had to go. And he had to go then. And he was calling us nonstop pleading with us to die. And we didn't even know there was a law in California. I mean, he meant just come and help me die. I couldn't even get into the hospital because of COVID. So 
Thankfully, my brother found that there was this End of Life Option Act in California. Um, he called an organization, I think, called End of Life Compassion Choices or something. They pointed him to a couple of hospices that actually do this. There's not many that do. There's not many doctors that do it. There's not many pharmacies that do it. We were able to go about starting a 15-day waiting period, getting dad to come home and be in the center of, I moved him right into the middle of the living room. We, we had a countdown. We had a deadline. He chose the date. Suddenly, he had this agency that he never had before, this 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 power, not since he had had the stroke, did he have this kind of control over his own body and what was going to happen to it. And that really changed his general outlook. But what was clear during those days in the hospital was that he felt like a failure, that he felt like he was a burden, that he felt like he, he didn't seem to understand the impact he had had on us. And that was that was destroying me. Like I was like, if I don't have a chance to show him this before he dies, I, I don't know if I'd be able to go on because um, he was really my best friend, pal and hero. And so I panicked. Um, I thought I should take out cameras. And I also thought, uh oh, am I trying to mediate this? Like, what am I trying to hide behind the cameras? Is this going to hurt my family? Is this something dad would want? I asked dad and he said, I instinctively know you're on the right track. That was his answer. Um, but he was supportive of me, even like when I was making dig and got arrested, you know, and caught my one phone call. He was like, how do we get you out? You know, he wasn't like, what are you doing? You know, documentaries weren't even a thing back then. So he could have been like, you know, what are you thinking for your career? But he was always like, yes, and supportive. And that was what made him so special also. So anyway, he said that, but I still went to see a, a like a spiritual advisor I see when I'm facing insurmountable obstacles in life. And this was one of them. And, and I said, I feel like I should film and I just don't know if this is a good idea. And I expected her to say, you should not. You should keep this private. You should just be there, be present. She said, if you feel like you should film, you should film. So I asked my mom, who I think was relieved that there would be something of dad left after he was physically gone. Um, and I set up cameras, and I tell you something, it was totally for personal use. It was not going to be a film. I had written a script about Dad, actually, that I've been developing for six years, but I've had always the intention to tell his story, oddly enough, since the, since I became a filmmaker, like 30 years ago. I mean, I started, when I started making films, my goal, my ultimate goal was to make a film about Dad, and people would say to me, are you going to make a doc? And I'd say, I don't have any archival footage, and really all, all that you see in the film is all that I had. So, so yeah, so I set up these cameras totally just for, for our family's archive and to have Daddy captured to have his voice and personality and to kind of bottle him up. And um, as soon as I did, I was able to be 100% present and be the quarterback of his care and forget about the cameras. Nobody was really operating them. But me, if people visited, I would make check on them, you know, and I would ask anybody who was passing by to see if the red light was on. But I was basically just set them up on sticks and then would move them and, and operate them if I if and when I could. But it felt like for the first time after all these years of making films that filmmaking was there for me. You know, it was there as like a safety blanket. I knew that daddy, I wouldn't lose him totally because I couldn't remember him. Oh, that's the other. I couldn't remember him since before his stroke. So I didn't want to forget him after, like my memory's blocked from him being able-bodied. It's one thing for him to, you know, sign off on this and give you his encouragement, but what about your brother and sister? What kinds of conversations did you have with the two of them? So my my brother is one of the most laissez-faire, you know, my, my brother's like my father. Um, he's a solid rock. Now he's the rock of the family, you know. 
uh, taking care of mom's finances and just he's just such a beautiful soul. Um, he and I have always been kind of best friends. You know, we're only 18 months apart and we both I went I was lucky enough to go to college with all three of them. We all went to Yale out in the middle child. He and I started making films together at Yale. Uh, we, a public access station opened in New Haven, Connecticut, and we were like signed up and we were uh, making stuff in college and we founded Interloper Films, my company, together. So he was, you know, who is he's a filmmaker. He's an editor. Um, he he said and also he has said now in Q&A's like that he called me, a, I think, obsessive. I think he said I'm an obsessive filmmaker, filmer of things that were, they're so used to me filming the the siblings that they just kind of like oh here's Andy being Andy you know Rachel though is a little bit more she's a little bit more reticent to be around a camera she she feels like cameras sort of change things and they they often do she says in this case they didn't she actually said it wouldn't be my choice and asked mom and dad she came in you know five days before dad died so by then I had the filmmaking I knew that by the time Rachel came the filmmaking had to be super invisible. I mean, the camera, the main camera was in the other room shooting through a door. Uh, a little camera, like a 5D or 7D or something, was on the, uh, like a ho little hospital tray that was kind of backed up against, you know what I mean? So it was really, there was another camera that was like behind a TV. So they were as unobtrusive as possible. Um, I had a Nest camera because I knew I was in shock and I wasn't going to pay attention to the filmmaking process and that I wanted to make sure I knew what was happening every day in the chronology. So I put a surveillance camera up just to keep track of time of day. And thank God, because the cameras ran out of batteries often and mics would die and that was not the main event. So when it came to making a film later, that moment where dad calls Gigi to his bed, the only camera was that surveillance camera. So anyway, Rachel said it wouldn't be my choice, but dad said... It was important to him. And um, and then mom said at this point, this many days in, she said it was extremely important to her. And so Rachel said, well, that's what's most important. So I'll get on board and came and said that she made a decision. She's told us all that she made a decision that the cameras were not even there. And as soon as she made that decision, the cameras were not there. Because what was happening for all of us was we were losing the most important person in our lives from our physical world. And it was it was like facing a press. We were walking towards, it was like walking a plank or something, you know, which is how I editorially tried to make the film feel. You know, it's just kind of pushing forward towards this day. And um, we have this deadline where we have, and we have things to accomplish before this deadline. Like we have to get dad to realize his impact, shed his shame. Uh, we need mom to face dad. You know, I had all these things I was trying to do that were more important than making a film. I didn't think I was making a film. So I was very excited when Rachel came out and I finally had, you know, a superpower rabbi sister partner in crime on this one. I mean, among other things, the movie is incredibly suspenseful for those very reasons you say. I mean, I was watching just as a viewer watching it, the it's almost like, I mean, not to trivialize it, but it's almost like high noon or something, you know, watching this movie where you do have this thing that you know is coming and it just, and it's so overwhelmingly emotional watching it, knowing what's coming, because the process of watching the movie as a viewer, and I, I think this is probably what you were intending based on what you've said both on mic and beforehand about your father, is, I mean, as a viewer, you fall in love with your father watching this movie. And so the more you fall in love with him, the closer you are to the end. And it's really, really 
powerful. Um, at what point in all of this do you know this is no longer just for your personal, you know, memories or use and you're going to actually turn it into a film for the public? So my my sister somewhere in those 15 days asked me to make a memorial video. You know, we, we spoke very openly, as you saw in the film with dad, about what would happen when he died and what the funeral would look like. And Rachel was such an incredible guide uh, to to have in the family. Um, we had never faced anything like this. And to say, you know, for example, we're going to tuck dad in, we could we could we could put dirt in there and we could fill the grave um, was such a just and that would be like tucking dad in some of these rituals that she brought that we weren't aware of, we were never very religious, so we didn't have you know, any understanding of how Judaism handles death. But Rachel also just brought her own specials. The singing was so helpful. My, my son mentioned how important that was to him. She said, can you make a memorial video, you know, five minutes, five to 10 minutes um, with some of this footage that you've been recording? And I, I don't know, honestly, if I would have made a film at all if she hadn't asked that because Two weeks after dad died, um, I sat down. I had one week till the memorial. I figured it would take me a day or two to find five minutes of stuff of really fun, good moments with dad and and cut something together. And I I stood up a week later the night before the memorial. I mean, I really, I'm, I'm sure I slept in there, but not much. Um, I was so amazed to find dad alive in the Avid. It was the magic and power of film has never uh, impacted me like that. I've never realized the power of it until that moment when suddenly dad's alive in the avid. And add to that, he's not suffering anymore. And I don't have to worry about him being in pain, no matter, and, you know, and, and helping him. I'm just, he's where he wants to be. And I get to laugh with him and cry with him and discover all sorts of moments in that footage that somehow I missed because that wasn't, I don't know, there's something about the observational eye of the camera that allowed me to just watch these scenes unfold. And I started cutting together and I ended up with a 32 minute memorial video, um, which was very upsetting to Rachel because she had a whole other memorial planned and suddenly it was a film screening. Then I called my friend Rachel Morgan, another Rachel who uh, runs the Sidewalk Film Festival. And she asked me if I had a film for her that year in Birmingham, Alabama. And I said, I might have a short film about my dad. I've just cut this memorial video and I could probably share some aspect of it um, because the reaction at the Zoom memorial reception was people changing their actual ideas about death. They weren't scared anymore from seeing this video. And it wasn't like the film, but it was like people said that last night about the film. Actually, they said that they weren't scared of death anymore and that every high school student should see it. Even though it very much shows my father dying, as you know, um, there's something that works to help people and people were helped by it. And we could see that in the memorial and my sister could see that. So that was very impactful. Oh, and also like end of life, like people had thought that that was wrong and reform Judaism, actually, it was against reform Jewish law um, until this year. Since the film has come out, they've reversed their stance on that. So. So that was the step one. Then I couldn't stop editing because um, dad was right there and I was my in my office and I would just like go there, spend time with him nights, weekends and everything. Um, and the film just sort of flew through me. It was like as if I was channeling it more than making it. You know, I have to say I'm often like that as an editor. Editing is definitely the most addictive of all the activities around filmmaking that I do. I often will find myself there for 18 hours straight. But 
there was something different about this. It was like I instinctively knew every shot, what should be in, what should be out. It was almost the most streamlined process. Um, and there was also this incredible element of people grappling with death. Everyone who came in there and dad being this totally witty, sharp, funny, but also kind and, and, and gentle, courageous presence. He's the one who's going to die, but he's trying to take care of everyone else around him and help them with their, you know, like Lucy who visits that beautiful scene when Lucy comes and my friend Lucy and she's just beside herself and crying. And he's just, he says, she says, how did you change? Like, how come you're not scared? And he said, confidence. And, and then he just sort of taps her hand, you know, and comforts her and says, maybe I'll come back in your dreams. You know, he's we're trying to work with her. He's like, I'll do my best to communicate with you. You know, I mean, I just, or telling Gigi that she helped him so much or trying to warm Benji's hands on the morning he died. I just feel like I was able to also share the many different aspects of what made my father such an extraordinary role model for all of us in the family and to everybody who ever worked for him at Air Florida. You know, he was an incredible leader um, and his fam his company was like a family. And that's a lot about what the script was about, was bringing that company, family company, like what a company really should be alive. He was that guy, you know, and I feel like he sh it shone through in that in that footage. So I just couldn't stop. And suddenly there was a feature and I called my friend back at Sidewalk and I said, um, like a few weeks later, I was like, what if I brought you a feature? And she said, I said, it's kind of evolving into a feature. And she said, I'll show anything you have. I said, but here's the thing. I don't want anybody to to know about who it is or what it is. I don't want a title attached, my name. It has to be completely secret. I just want to see if what I'm sharing is utterly too personal. We showed up with a very rough cut out of sync. She put it on um, a secret screening for 100 people. I sat in the back with uh, Morgan Doctor, who scored the film, who's now my wife as of a month and a half ago. Um, she, we were, she leans over to me about 10 minutes in. She's like, this was a terrible. <laughs> I think a couple of people were like leaving to go get popcorn or something. And um, we thought people were like horrified and leaving the screening. And I felt like, oh, my gosh, maybe I'm just like sharing my bat mitzvah video or something. But when the lights came up, um, there was a standing ovation. And the thing that struck me the most was these two or three boys in the back. They were like 20 years old. They had no idea what they were going to see that day. And they said, we now have a, a man that we can aspire to be like, like we actually have it. A, a high bar of who to be in this world. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I need to finish this if this is if this is going to be the reaction, you know. And uh, so we just raced back to LA and then finished the film. And actually the, the scene with Rachel with dad where he says Biden won and so did I, um, I found on his birthday when I was finishing the film for Sundance December 12th. So I, I the bulk of the feature came flying out in a couple months, but then the you know, certain things like that and like, you know, Shuki with the turkey, making the tur uh, touches like that were part of a, you know, very slow and easy, wonderful process of just perfecting what I thought was was the the way to share something that I think more than anything, the motivation was just we learned so much, you know, and it felt wrong to me as a filmmaker who had spent my, you know, life learning and sharing what I learned to go through the most transformative epic learning experience of my life and most profound and not share it. And so Rachel thankfully got on board.
yeah, it's it's such an incredible movie. I mean, I have to. I mean, I'm a fan of a lot of your work, and I think this is, you know, the best thing you've ever done. I think it's one of the best things anybody's ever done because it just works on so many different levels. I mean, it is. It's this great personal story, this great character study of a great man, and and what's, you know, but it's also as you say, just kind of you talk about all the things you learned. As a viewer, you learn so much from this movie. Just it's like a great procedural almost about this whole compassionate care idea, you know, and this and, and which is something that I came into the movie, you know, I live in California. I didn't even know this was a, a legal option in California. And I'm curious, you know, I thought you said did such a beautiful job of making the film be political in a sense without being overtly political. Like those ideas, all of this, all of the, it, it's obviously very pro compassionate care and pro people having the autonomy to make those decisions about their lives. But it's not explicitly stated. It's just very, you know, seamlessly expressed through this man's story. And I guess I'm curious if you, what your feelings were about how you were going to get those ideas across. I mean, was it something that you ever did consider, not making the movie preachier, but you know what I mean? Like, did you ever consider like make, bringing that more to the forefront or was it always just about telling it through the story this way? I I feel like the personal is is the most political that you can, you know, I think that opening people's hearts and minds um, through genuine emotion and intimacy you know, is the most effective way to go about it. I didn't make the film to change the law. However, um, if if I couldn't take dad's suffering away, I could only help him die. For all those years, it, it was it was really painful for me. It's the greatest cross I've had to bear in my life. And to then now be able to possibly relieve tens of thousands of other terminally ill people um, and their families of this unnecessary suffering and help to give them a basic human right that everyone should have, the right over our own bodies, which I know we're having big conversations about right now. And this falls under that umbrella, you know, who should stand between you and your right to die with dignity um, and to to relieve your suffering. It doesn't make any sense. And it's only a, a law in nine or 10 states, nine states and one province here in in the U.S. So there's a lot to be done and Compassion and Choices has it in front of like 22 state legislatures. And we showed the film already to the New York state legislature with MTV documentary films blessing in May. And we'll do it again. You know, I mean, we'll we'll show it as and they think it's the most powerful tool they've ever had in their toolbox to work with to change the law, because it does allow people to understand the nuances of what this means to the person who's dying and what it can mean to the family. You know, we were able to set up these Zoom calls and and let him say goodbye and let all of these people around the world have closure. We were able to help him understand the impact he had. We were able to celebrate his life. It was the most beautiful and sacred space we've ever inhabited. It was literally, you know, when I was talking to Morgan about the score, I said, make it womb-like, you know, make it feel like what it felt like nothing outside that room mattered and everything important in life which is really love as the headline rose to the surface and that was it and that's why when dad was calling bank of america or i put in the finance meeting i just wanted to show how the kind of crap that covers what's truly important in life that we have to deal with because we're here taxpaying citizens but you know just it, it does i hope strike you as like oh my gosh just why it's so sad that he even knows how much the gas bill is, you know, and that he's worrying about that. And that's what he worried about. You know, he worried about providing for his family and he felt like he had failed us. And that was a big 
big that was the biggest thing rachel doing that vidui and relieving him of that shame was the biggest the greatest final sort of moment for us as a family and i think you know without this law we never would have had that and dad himself said to me would you rather get a call in the middle of the night or would you rather know when i'm going and so yeah none of us thought about death none of us knew about this law rachel's rabbinate has many different you know she came in there with a lot of political agenda she's a massive social activist she never this was not on the list she had to write something for the forward to get in front of it because at that time it violated reform jewish law and here she is a rabbi helping her father die literally helping me hold the cup she asked me to remove that shot i looked every angle had her hand and she said you know what Let's just do it. She's as brave as he is, you know. But now we're we're huge advocates for it. Yeah, and I hope I hope the film helps with that. But I think, you know, the more intimate a film is, um, the more particular, the more people can relate to it. And so many people say they see their own families on screen. And I think that is ironic. You know, you'd think if you cast a wide net, people would have more space to find themselves in the story, but it's actually the opposite. Oh, absolutely. And I think it also makes you think about, you know, speaking to those three guys who watched the movie in Alabama, I mean, it, it really you know, it makes you think about what kind of person you want to be and what kind of life you want to live. And, and you know, to me, it would have been the great tragedy uh, of all time had he not had that experience of learning that he wasn't a failure to you. Because, you know, to me, that was maybe the most devastating part of the whole movie was the idea that this guy thought of himself as a failure when it's like you watch it and it's such a, you know, it's a testament to what a great man he was without being sugar-coated without being overly sentimental. I mean, I just was completely, again, amazed. Like, this is, he, your dad is, like, one of the great movie characters of all time, like, one of the great heroes. And, you know, there's so many cool things in this movie. You know, I, I love the fact that it's also, you get this little kind of crash course in, like, aviation history during the period when he was, you know, had his airline. And you learn about these things about, how he changed airline travel in a way, you know, that in a way that affects us today. He I mean, democratized it, the skies. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when you were editing, like, what were you, how did you kind of figure out the shape of balancing those kinds of things with the personal story? Or was that just intuitive for you at this point? I mean, I have my own, you know, kind of storytelling rules. Um, and I guess this is called the toolkit, so I'll reveal them. But um, <laughs> usually in my films, um, a person's true deep motivation or or the jam of their history that's very important to understand happens in the first 20 minutes, you know? And uh, in this case, I think it's like minute 17 or something, but it wasn't calculated. It's just organically understanding, you know, there was, there, there's these scenes that fell like gifts. I honestly think my dad is as much a part of the making of this film as I am. I think it's, I think I was channeling him. Um, or something much bigger than myself in making it. Um, so it would just fall into place that, you know, that conversation I had one night with him um, where I asked him what he's going to dream about, and he said, me. He said, um, me loves you, remember? And uh, and then he asked if I love Morgan, and he says it's going to bless our union. It's going to be the first thing he does. So he's already like planning what he's going to bless first, second and third when he gets to wherever he's going. <laughs> and um, and then he doesn't realize Morgan's in the room. And I love that she says, I love that you have plans. 
And then I remembered he had this file folder, and he was telling me from the hospital the week before about his plan to make reparations for slavery and for all of the, you know, murder and and abuse we've perpetrated on Native Americans. And he has a literal concrete plan. He wants to get to Joe Biden, you know, which I hope we will get to Joe Biden um, someday. It's just when he pipes up and talks about Ron Klain and stuff, I mean, I think you just get an insight into this man. You know, it, when he talks about what he wants to do to Donald Trump, it's the turning point of the film to realize, oh, my gosh, this this person is really he's not you, you start out the film. I feel like from my perspective, he, I'm recording dad desperate to die from the hospital and he comes home and you see this man who is pretty much helpless being put in a bed and you're not sure really what you're in for. But as soon as he tells Rachel what he wants to do to Donald Trump or pipes in about Ron Klain, you realize you're with like a fiercely intelligent protagonist, you know, and it was that opportunity to kind of have mom shape it and bring us into the past and say he thinks he can get his plan to Joe Biden because he knows Joe Biden from the 70s. Bam into the song, into the motto of the airline. And of course, what is that motto? Fly a little kindness, you know, which is pretty much the motto of the film, I think. And it's what I say to him before he dies, which I, I of course, have no, had no idea what I said to him before he died. I was so terrified about what was going to happen next and that these are my final words to my father. And I asked him to fly a little kindness. But anyway, that's the, that's the theme song from the from Air Florida. And it was a perfect opportunity to kind of go into his backstory there, which is one that, as I said, has been my dream to, to tell that story my whole life. Because what he, what he did, I mean, he, I, they've had testimonial dinners to him ever since. I mean, literally 40 years since that airline existed. And they have met and they have said, you ruined my career to go to any other airline because Air Florida was the best place to be and to work. And he would do these really innovative, crazy things that, of course, I didn't get into in the doc, which I can't wait to do in the future. Well, that's what I was going to ask is, do you, are you still going to make the feature or did this exercise that? Oh, no, this no. is like my still my dream. To <laughs> uh -huh. make. Yeah, the doc is surprising to me. You know, the doc came through me and came out and it's obviously meant to be here. And I think it's dad's gift to all of us. But the feature is something that, you know, I was reading him on his deathbed and we were going over the details of and that is a story because what you can do, what I could do, what I can do with that is really bring him alive in his younger self, in his able-bodied self that I never really got to see myself as a nine-year-old. I did. I do remember vaguely, you know, I do remember him just being this hero and when he had that stroke, it was, you know, as a result of his neck being manipulated in a massage. Our whole lives turned upside down, you know. So for me, the the film is an opportunity. The scripted film is an opportunity to um, to tell the story of Air Florida and the sort of the rise and fall and rise again of Eli Timoner because what he was so successful. It was the fastest growing airline in the history of aviation. It was within 10 years. I mean, it started with like two little prop jet planes, one little prop jet plane, I think. And then it it was in 17 countries and, you know, 3,000 employees by the time he had the stroke on July 10th, 1982. And the plane, you know, there was an accident, a famous crash that happened with the plane also. With That was actually the fault of Boeing and air traffic control. It was split four ways, the blame for that crash. There was, and Dad explained that there's, for an accident like that to happen, it has to be this perfect storm of multiple things going wrong. But American Airlines, gun. Uh, de-icing gun broke, was broken. 
TS, uh, not TSA, um, air traffic control sent a plane to land on the same tarmac and told Air Florida they had to go in the middle of de-icing, which the de-icing gun wasn't working. And then Boeing had a letter from pilots in Europe who said that the new 737, if it had ice on the wings, had a problem lifting off. And the runway is very short. Um, and, and so it crashed into the Potomac. It hit the bridge and it split in half. July, I'm sorry, January 13th, 1982. So all of that is in the script, right? And uh, it, it doesn't make any sense to put it in the doc. But I was literally stunned as the documentary was embraced by people. I was like, you know, I, I almost felt like it, it, was a, it was a surprise to me, you know, but I guess it's the result of pure intentions. Uh, it kind of just came out a different way. Well, it does seem to me like this would be a difficult movie. I mean, it's, it's surprising in a way. In some ways, it's surprising. In some ways, it's not surprising when you say that, you know, it was the, the fastest movie ever edited, that it came out so quickly. Because I would think, you know, I guess this kind of gets back to the reaction at the Sidewalk Film Festival. I would think that you might doubt yourself doing this, you know, sitting there and looking at it and asking yourself, am I, is this actually moving for an audience or am I being moved because I'm so close to it and it's such a, you know, I was such a part of it. I mean, when you're editing something like this, how do you keep your objectivity about what's working for an audience? Or did you just not think about that and figure, okay, I'm going to do it and then throw it up at Sidewalk Film Festival and see what happens? I mean, again, I think I honestly think that that all of my work, um, all the many, 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 many all nighters that I've pulled. I'm sorry that I did in a way, you know, all those years I was like, oh, my God, how many I pulled for We Live in Public or for dig or join us or cool it or brand. And I, I mean, I just would get sucked into editing. And I think it all just was there for me. It's like a skill set that I have from just, you know, it's like an outlier theory of just too many hours, so many hours in front of the Avid that it, it these choices are just, I don't know that I could have made this film in my 20s. You know, I don't think I probably could have. I don't think I could have filmed it and also been been able to be so present you know, without worrying about it. And I don't think I could have edited it. I always have an eye to the audience. I don't even make a film unless I think it's going to be relevant to people. Mom's in rollers and a muumuu. David's wearing the same shirt many days in a row. I'm sitting there in muscle shirts without a bra on, no makeup, like crying my eyes out. You know, there's, there's no, this was not an intentional film, but as I'm editing it, these scenes are perfect. They're literally beginning, middle, and end. You know, you dramatic storytelling is a person comes in, they have a problem to solve, they figure out, they have a conflict, and then there's some kind of resolution, ideally, right? That just kept happening in this process. It was, so as I went from daughter to filmmaker, I was able to grieve with a dimension. So first I'm, first I'm making this memorial video and I'm very much daughter, you know, and I'm just feeling it and I make this 32 minute piece. Then the reaction from the first audience ever to see this footage that at that Zoom memorial reception on the 21st of March, exactly three weeks after dad died, was just like, it was stunning to all of us. Like we were all like, wow, okay. And then the filmmaker hat started to go on, you know, and it's both. I got to grieve with the dimension I don't think many people ever get. So that was a blessing, a true blessing, a true gift of, of filmmaking, a gift. And then, yeah, just just kind of going, okay, well, what do I want? What what do I want to make sure is in here? Like, for example, the death of my father. I couldn't edit the first pass of that. That was the only thing I couldn't edit the first pass of. I couldn't go through the raw footage of that and just go th go through it minute by minute by minute. I ended up, once I got a, a first cut of it, 
I thought, oh, no, we have to include this. And there was this and Rachel singing. And then, you know, I wanted to make sure the conversation about how we how we do this also happens because there were three drinks and there was, you know, he, first they slow down his heart and then his lungs and then you're expected to hold a cup, you know, and then you have to drink it in two minutes or you go in a coma. It was like an obstacle course that I felt like this has got to change also. Like law first, but in parallel, let's also work on making this more humane for everyone involved and more peaceful. Um, so there was a lot that I needed to, I ended up editing the death many, many times over, but um, that's when the filmmaking side takes over. And it's a very strange trans, it's sort of transfer from one daughter to filmmaker and back because sometimes I would just cry editing that. And sometimes I would just be not crying and not emotional and just very surgical about it cuts right here. This is where the score comes in. What angle? I mean, I've just been through, you know, to finish a film, you have to go through it hundreds of times. So the emotionality of it also changes where it becomes a film. And then simultaneously, it's your father dying. So it's a very strange position to be in. But yeah, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of scenes that I had to leave on the cutting room floor, a lot of moments that um, I decided to bring to the fore. I mean, it was a lot of like editorial decision making that happened. You mentioned the way you placed the cameras and everything. What about sound? How did you get audio for the, for this movie? Um, I have, you know, lav mics and I would put them on. That's what daddy refers to when he talks about the pesky wires. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, he was always, always had a lav mic on. Um, and as you saw in the movie, he wouldn't let me take it off. So, um, though he, that was one of the few times I've ever heard him complain. So I was, I fe felt so bad. I thought I should probably take this off, Dad. You know, I've, I had offered, and he just wouldn't let it come off. Um, what does he say? I don't want to cross the director. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, my sister, you know, I loved her up before she walked in the door. Um, I should say that I've been making a, a doc about my sister for years, just because I think her work is so extraordinary. So that's how I had that footage of her in New York, as as a rabbi, um, is because. I've been, I've been working on a project that she, that she's doing in Brooklyn with a with a Black Baptist church. So, um, but that's a much much less private, much less personal film for her. You know, this was a this was a big leap for her to take. Uh, so sound was like that. Lobs would run out. Mom didn't even know what it was that we were putting on her. So she's holding it in her hand all the time. She'd go to like the bathroom and leave it there. You know, I mean, it was it was def definitely haphazard. In fact, my partner, Morgan, she she was like, Andy, this is really you should really capture sound um, better than you are right now. And I mean, I had shotgun mics on the cameras, but the cameras were really far back. And I had these lav mics and we didn't have a, really a crew. We just had little Jenny Hochberg, who was a story producer, who then became co-producer because she was so courageous to kind of helped me mine things during that time. She's kind of part of the family. So we didn't want to bring in any outsider. We brought in a DP I've worked with named Turner, Turner Jumminville on the final day because I knew I couldn't participate in filming that at all. I had done Coming Clean, the film I made about the opioid epidemic with him, and he has a really gentle nature. So I had him come meet mom and dad. And so dad would know who was filming his death. And um, they had a wonderful visit. And Turner very courageously came along. But there were very few people there, and so the lobs would run out. So Morgan, thankfully, brought over this pencil mic because um, she's a musician. And she said, I have this recording mic. I'm just going to tape it to dad, the leg of Dad's bed. And so she taped it right by his pillow on the ground. Yeah, if you ever watch the film again, you'll see her, like, 
pop up with her little dachshund because she's like checking on the mic and then like in the middle of a, a very important scene she like kind of goes creeping out from because she was checking on her little mic and the filmmaking process i think for all of us became more important interestingly enough i mean i i i guess it makes sense but my i would find my brother behind the camera when his kids were talking to dad because as that date approaches, you know, and especially in the last couple of days as it approached, that was all that was going to be left was whatever the camera had and our memories, which were, you know, we were just all in shock. So so David was operating camera, you know, and then uh, I found my son, Juki, with headphones on standing in the and I, I, I came I went to use the bathroom. So I came back and he was just crying. And I looked at what he was filming. He was filming mom sitting with dad, you know, saying you never let me down. So in that conversation. So, yeah, it was a family affair, 100%. Well, it's a really, really beautiful, wonderful movie, and I appreciate you taking the time to come and talk with me about it. I hope as many people see it as possible because I just think it's a, an incredible piece of work. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate being here. This is a great conversation. 